Hello and welcome once again to Yesterladies. I'm Dana. And I'm Heather. And today, what are we talking about, Heather? We are talking about a wonderful figure. Her name oh. is Mary Seacole. She is a wonderful figure. We were just saying how impressed we both were, like <laughs> wanting to text each other while we were doing the research, being like, oh my God, she's amazing. <laughs> I started reading about her and I was like, what? <laughs> What? In every paragraph, I was like, oh my God, more awesome stuff. Yeah. She just gets better and better. I feel like there has been no one as capable, accomplished, and selfless in the whole history of the world. (laughs) Which is a big statement to make. Wow. I don't know if I would agree with that statement, but she's certainly wonderful. (laughs) I just don't know who you would put above her. I mean, this is our Mary Sequel podcast. I'm going to just like go out on a limb and be like, she's the best today. You're going to commit. Yeah. (laughs) I'm going to commit. (laughs) I'm going to stay a little reserved, but but very admiring. Very admiring. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, when was she born, Heather, and where? All right. So, Dana, (laughs) uh, she was born in 1805 in Kingston, Jamaica, and her maiden name was Mary Jane Grant. So she is of mixed race. Her father was, sorry, mixed race. Her father was a Scottish soldier and her mother was a free black Jamaican woman. Um, And she had a profession of her own as well. Uh, She kept a boarding house and would often nurse invalid soldiers there. Um, And apparently she had a pretty neat background in medicine. Uh, Her mother, she uh, knew a lot of herbal medicine and Mm. uh, had picked up a lot because Herbal medical knowledge had come with um, Africans who were brought in for slave labor. And uh, so she had a really neat background in sort of herbal medicine and like more um, uh, traditional nursing techniques. Right. Yeah, I um, I really liked that. And then the term that her mother went by and then later Mary kind of went by was doctress. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which seems like that was kind of a common term to give to somebody who now and all the way through I was thinking – She could almost be both her mother and herself. Uh, I think the modern comparison, they were like nurse practitioners, um, kind of amateur doctors. I mean, there just wasn't training available to black women at that time and place. Um, Certainly doors weren't open to go to medical school for them. So they picked up their knowledge where they could and um, learned as they went along and yeah, used a variety of techniques, including native um, knowledge as well as kind of more Western understanding, or at least Mary did. I, I don't know um, how far her mother took it, but... Uh, right. And it seems like Mary was um, initiating a lot of this as well. So she mm-hmm. learned a lot from her mother, but then we'll talk about this a little bit later. Everywhere she traveled, she was constantly gathering additional medical knowledge and, uh, uh, we'll come back to this, but she at one point went as far as to perform an autopsy on a cholera patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to just like start your own autopsy, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's pretty gutsy. And she was obviously very curious and, uh, and Absolutely. very involved in building her medical knowledge. So, so she she described herself uh, later in life. She wrote an autobiography, and I believe in that she described herself in early life as a Creole with good Scotch blood coursing in my veins, which I kind of like. <laughs> <That's> very nice. <laughs> and she um, she made a lot of the fact that she felt she took from both her father and her mother, and from her father she felt she got his ambition and his drive and his wanderlust. And from her mother, she got 
uh, an interest in and knowledge of medicine. So I like that she, you know, valued both of her parents equally and that she saw the the benefit of their different perspectives and their different backgrounds. Um, and that must have been um, quite a thing to for her parents to be married at that at, at that time and place, to be a, a white man and a black woman. Um, that couldn't have been easy. And as much as, as you say, like her mother was a free black woman, um, they were in a place with slavery. And as much as Mary was free herself, she was the daughter of a free woman and the daughter of a free man, although that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Mm. Um, she, of course they had like no civil rights. She couldn't her and her mother they could not vote they couldn't hold office i mean i think both being women and black right would have had something to do with that but list here some of the restrictions oh yeah yeah those are on it no voting no public office no profession so she couldn't have gone into uh medicine as a profession even though it sounds like she would have been very interested in doing so um even because they were mixed race even though Mm -hmm. um, they were free so yeah a lot of restrictions at that time absolutely so she um, continued her mother's boarding house and continued the, a lot of the nursing services that her mother had provided. And it sounds like she did this with a sister as well. She had a sister, Louisa, and the two of them ran this boarding house together in Jamaica. And uh, she became very proficient in nursing cholera and yellow fever, mm-hmm. uh, cholera in particular. And that kept cropping up, that one disease and her specialty in that one disease kept cropping up all through her life. So she got basically tons of hands-on experience um, in Jamaica in Kingston running this uh, boarding house and and sort of come hospital with her sister. Um, Right. Exactly. So, and then also in her early life, I kind of like that the two passions of her life seem to be um, nursing and medicine and travel. Yes. (laughs) Heather's very excited about that. (laughs) Um, So when she was, Young, I believe I saw in one of our sources that she was about 21 when she made her first trip to England. And that's where she was really desperate to go. I guess as a little girl, she would kind of trace the route on a map between Kingston, Jamaica and London, England. And uh, she was desperate to go there. And apparently some relatives of her father's at a certain point when she was this young lady invited her to come and visit. So she definitely snatched that opportunity (laughs) and made her way to England. And it sounds like she kind of took a couple of trips and um, it really bolstered her her love of the empire and of britain and she really saw herself as a a british lady that's how she thought of herself so i think later in life and i mean at all times really when she came up against pretty horrifying racism it it that reason kind of made her even more like take a step back and because she thought of herself as a full british lady and had a hard time reconciling her image of herself with other people's image of her. Absolutely. And she would have had so much more knowledge about areas in the British empire and lands held and countries held by the British empire, uh, than, than most of its subjects in Britain. So, um, yeah, to feel yourself so much a part of that and then to be considered not would, would be painful. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So she traveled all around the Caribbean. Um, she visited 
Cuba, Haiti, Bahamas, we know for sure. Probably more places even than that, but we have records of those. Uh, she was in Panama in Central America. And then you, Dana mentioned her first trip to Britain. Um, so she was traveling extensively um, before marriage and after. And uh, and I just I was, was like all over this. Like, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> this woman has captured my heart immediately. <laughs> you know, all this travel. This is so, so right, right up my alley. So... In 1836, Mary married a man named Edwin Seacole, who apparently was white, which, again, how interesting. Her parents were in a, um, a mixed marriage, and she took that mantle up herself. And I thought, that's very cool. And again, it can't have been easy. I mean, it's, I feel like still today, mm. um, couples, interracial couples deal with still a lot of horrible stuff um some pretty nasty comments sometimes so i can't imagine in 1836 in jamaica where there's still slavery um that must have been a pretty tough pill for a lot of people around them to swallow so Mm -hmm. she just she she just did what she wanted to do (laughs) she wasn't gonna back down to anybody and like breaking boundaries everywhere Mm -hmm. just without batting an eye seemingly yeah if this is what i feel like doing this is what i'm gonna go do and you all can suck it or <laughs> yeah. oh dear oh dear well maybe she didn't say that <laughs> i shouldn't put these words in her mouth but, but she boldly followed her own uh wishes and and desires and, absolutely and uh, absolutely. ambitions so yeah so <laughs> unfortunately the marriage was short-lived because edwin died just oh. a few years later in 1844 and then mary had a really rough couple of years because um i, I the year before Edwin died. The hotel that they were, or not the hotel, the general store, sorry, that they were working and working at trying to make a success and it was just not doing very well. That burned down and then Edwin died and then her mother died. And Mm. all of this happened in a short period of time. And um, Mary is left as still pretty young widow with, you know, not a lot of money, I believe. Mm. And, and, kind of a a struggle ahead of her but again she just you know (laughs) she forges ahead and um what we kind of see over and over again is that she was a very astute businesswoman uh so her next venture was um a hotel that she brought to success the british hotel in kingston and then uh i think you were you were looking at the details when she went to panama Right. So her brother was a hotel manager in Panama at this time. Uh, so she traveled there um, to to help him out. And while there, there was a huge cholera epidemic. And so she, having all this experience nursing cholera already in Jamaica, just pitches right in and, uh, and starts helping others. Um, and this is where the autopsy comes in. So oh, apparently yes. one of the victims, uh, she was able to conduct sort of an amateur autopsy on them. And she was doing this to try to try to ascertain the sources or, or some of the problem, like, like we need more information about this disease if I'm going to nurse it successfully. So, um, I mean, she's doing it like medical research basically. Exactly. And that's one of the things that, um, a couple of our sources pointed out was that, uh, kind of (laughs) ahead of her time, she was very much focused on almost a scientific method and she, Mm -hmm. she sought answers to nursing problems in a methodical, science-based, rigorous manner by doing things like autopsies. And it's worth pointing out that 
she was one of the first advocates for um, hygiene and cleanliness. And she was one of the first people to theorize that cholera and other diseases like it were catching, that mm. it wasn't like, I don't know, in the air or whatever, as people <laughs> tended to think at the time, but that it was something that was passed person to person. Of course, she was absolutely right about that, but it was not a widely held or accepted view at the time but she mm. I feel like anybody who is that close to yes. a disease yeah. like that and seeing it affect tons of people around her and watching its progress and you get to know it and so she would have a a, a closer vantage point and a better understanding of, of how it moved and where it might have come from mm. and particularly when you see it I mean she saw this disease on multiple continents mm -hmm. right and and in multiple decades so to see again and again the same patterns you would be able to put together a really strong hypothesis I think about what how it worked or details Absolutely. about the disease yeah. yeah yeah all right so she eventually leaves Panama um, and during all these travels, she, like we said before, she's picking up these European medical ideas, combining it with a lot of like the herbal knowledge she received from her mother. Um, and she helped out Kingston had its own cholera epidemic in 1850s. So she was back there. She was using a combination of both, um, traditional herbal medicines that she was used to using. And, um, she integrated the use of lead acetate and, uh, mercury chloride. So mm -hmm. she's using really sort of like up-to-date very current chemicals to combat the disease as well Absolutely. so it's really kind of this melding you know you say she's pulling from both her parents and, and that sort of mirrors that melding too of like traditional and european medicines that she's Absolutely. pulling together to fight these diseases one other thing that i wanted to point out in this period so in the few years after her her husband passed away uh, apparently she was pressed by a number of suitors. She oh, was cool. still, of course, a, a young woman. And it sounds like a desirable young woman, attractive, and um, would have been seen as a pretty good catch, I would think. She was this bright, <laughs> you know, attractive yes. go-getter of a woman. So she was apparently pursued by a number of, of suitored, <laughs> suitors and she turned them all down. She wasn't, right. she wasn't interested in, in getting married again. And as some of the sources that we were looking at for this episode pointed out, I I think I agree that if she had married, she probably would not have done all of the things that she wanted to do or went on to do. A husband for her would have been kind of a fetter. <laughs> a bit of an anchor. Yeah. <laughs> Ball and chain. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it would have been difficult to travel the globe and start setting up, you know, medical well, and services. It just, and... At that time, when you were a married woman, mm -hmm. you weren't supposed to go off on your own and you weren't supposed to have a profession. Right. So as much as even as a, a woman and a black woman at the time, she wasn't supposed to have a profession <laughs> and go trotting the globe by herself. That was, you know, she wasn't supposed to be doing that. She did it anyway. But if she'd been married, I think it would have been even, even more not cool. <laughs> um, and if she had children, she may have been more tied down naturally anyway. So I think I, I, I like that about her, that, yeah. that it was a distinct choice on her part mm. to stay single mm -hmm. because she was interested in certain things. And she knew, I'm sure that if she got married, she wouldn't be able to be able to pursue her passions in the same way. Right. Unless she'd found um, a partner who, who really pursued all the same things as she did, right. With the same passions. But it seems like 
that how would be likely how is highly that unlikely. The time? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Because sometimes in history you see those kind of power couples come mm-hmm. together and they're like greater than the sum of their parts, right? But that's so that's rare. Uncommon. I yes. think we just see more often in history when Far we get these often. these women, these amazing women. Yeah a lot of the time they end up being single. And I think that mm, that's, yes. it, it's probably a choice on their part yeah. for a number of reasons. Yeah. yeah. And very telling that, yep. that not for lack of suitors and not for lack of, you know, she'd experienced marriage before. So mm. it's, yeah, it was definitely a conscious choice. Good for her. Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. So for a short while in Jamaica, she had a position, a nursing superintendent position of the Up Park Military Camp. So that was just a little jaunt into uh, the military and we had a little foreshadowing there. Well, and what's interesting is that from what I understand, after she had her success in Panama and did so much work there, good work and was kind of starting to be known as mm. a name in, in nursing, it's my understanding that the British military uh, asked that she head up mm. that venture back in Jamaica. So it it's odd, especially when we see later on in the not too distant future of her story, um, some of the response she got um, in her career is interesting to see that at this point, I guess in Jamaica, the British government is okay. <laughs> They're cool with her heading up this nursing program. Uh for the military in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And I like that you point out that she's building a relationship or sorry, a reputation for herself uh, through her skills and across different countries. So, you know, word gets about, and I, and I imagine, yeah, it may be that half of the world. <laughs> and then maybe it didn't follow her to England as we will see. <laughs> so at this at this time, this was 1854 and 1854 was when the Crimean war broke out in Europe and uh, that's a whole complicated mess that we don't <laughs> we don't have time to go into right now but we will say it involved it was basically most of Europe against Russia and it was I, it, reading about it to me it reminded me a little bit of, of what was to come in the first world war with mm. these alliances between nations and nation building and it was kind of a precursor in a lot of ways to World War one with some of the same kind of methods of battle. It was one of the first more modern wars, um, especially in the sense that um, disease was taking down more soldiers than uh, wounds were, even. I have a stat here that out of the 21,000 casualties of the war, only 3,000 were a direct consequence of injuries in war. That's so, amazing. Yeah, so a huge proportion would have been from disease. And they said you were in far more danger from disease in the war than you were from the actual war itself. So you can see how there's a huge need and a huge opening here for someone well, with Mary's skills. And, you know, conditions were yes. a large part of what led to this. Just terrible hygiene conditions in these military camps yep. led to outbreaks of Cholera, cholera and other yeah. tropical diseases. Malaria was a big one. Yeah. Um, one of the facts I was reading stated that within the first couple of weeks of the war, um, 8,000 men um, responded, uh, British soldiers and French, and uh, it only took a couple of weeks before they were almost all sick with oh cholera God. or malaria. Yeah. So you send thousands of troops to this war and your entire army is just slayed by 
the diseases they diseases they encounter there and it's just horrible it's, it's unbelievable such a death trap yeah like, oh god so, <laughs> so in jamaica back in jamaica mary mary starts hearing about this she hears the news especially because she was working with the military in jamaica and she would get the military news yes. from all of her contacts there and she was hearing about this situation and all of the disease that was rampant and she thought very naturally and appropriately yes gee, maybe this is somewhere I could be of use. I have some experience with this. <laughs> so she sails to England, uh, 1854, and approaches the war office and says, hey, you've got this war in the Crimea. You've got soldiers dying of cholera. I've got some skills. Uh, and offers uh, to go to go to the Crimea as an army nurse. Um, she's heard about the poor facilities. She's heard about the conditions. Uh, they absolutely turn her down. Oh, just flat. They're just not interested. No. Nope. Um, and interestingly, it is uh, Miss Florence Nightingale who is chosen instead. And while she's a huge name in nursing and, uh, and you know, a very interesting woman in her own mm-hmm. right. And very she, appropriately, a big name in nursing. Right. Absolutely. Certainly we should do an episode on Florence. I agree. Down the I line. Agree. She's amazing. Yes. But uh, she didn't caveats. have a whole lot of practical experience nursing especially cholera so um mary has years if not decades of experience with this disease well and it's worth pointing out sorry i just want to interject mm-hmm. here that uh in 1854 mary was 49 yes which is really getting up there I, for, I, especially at that time <laughs> or I, at that time it's getting up there it's not getting up there now i'm sorry mom and dad <laughs> i put a special note like age 49 Me too. <laughs> i was like wait how old is she so she's pushing 50 i'm gonna sail to england and volunteer my services in the middle of this horrendous war at great personal expense and danger um yeah so like no boundaries. <laughs> so like, age, not an issue. Just <laughs> yeah, amazing. Absolutely. Um, so after she's turned down to go as an well, army nurse. And my understanding is she was turned down by multiple organizations. Yes. So she applied to like every war office right. she could. She applies yes. to Florence Nightingale's organization. And I was going to say, she gets turned down. Then she applies to go with Florence Nightingale with her retinue of nurses. Gets turned down for that. Um, and, and there is something else as well. Um, oh, she, when she arrives, so she self funds her trip instead and says, okay, well, well you're not going to send me. I think we need to back, back up. up a little okay. bit. Cause there's more involved there. I mean, so apparently, uh, she writes in her autobiography that this was being turned down by all of these different people in the military. And we should, it's worth pointing out that when she arrived in London, she had glowing re- letters of recommendation from military doctors in Jamaica who recognized her skills and her mm. years of experience and had written her these lovely recommendations at all to no avail. It just mm. did not matter because as she realized, all people could see was the color of her skin and it just it was a non-starter um and apparently this was a quite a big as understandably it would be a big personal crisis for her here is this woman who just wants to help she she's got all of this to offer she's this incredible giving selfless educated intelligent woman who is saying who is volunteering to go to this horrible war zone horrible yes just horrible she is she's passionate about this she cares about the british soldiers part of the reason she wanted to go was because she knew a lot of them from jamaica and she wanted to go and like stay with her boys and help them out and in in this like selfless act all anybody sees is the color of her skin and they right. turn her down. They just turn her down over and over again. And so this, as I say, it was a big 
personal crisis for her. And I guess it was quite a, a blow to her self-esteem, her self-image, her sense of self-worth. Like, of course, all of this. I can't imagine how that would feel. Um, so now this is where she's just like, she, she moves up to another level, right? <laughs> because instead of doing the very understandable and reasonable, what I think most people would do, step of just saying, okay, fine. I wash right. my hands. Right. You don't deserve me. Yes. People. <laughs> no, instead she decides she's going to self fund her way to this war zone <laughs> by, and as we mentioned before, she was a very savvy businesswoman. So what right. she decided to do was go into a partnership with this Thomas Day, who was a cousin of her late husband. And I guess uh, they had had a partnership, like she had known him in Panama, I believe. And so they had a bit of a partnership there. And so she went to him in London and proposed like, okay, he had some funds. Why don't you fund us on our way to this war zone and we will open a hotel and we will use the resources from our hotel so I can fund my nursing <laughs> expedition, which is just unbelievable. And so that's what they did. I mean, props to this guy for Absolutely. Like, seeing her value yes. and yes. Um, not being afraid to go into business with this, this woman. Right. Um, so they... They went off That's and she gathered all of these like supplies and provisions and she funded her efforts during the war by selling supplies to the troops and to the officers and, and apparently running this amazing like hotel slash boarding house <laughs> slash like hospital where I guess on the main <laughs> floor it was like a hotel and a bar and then on the, on the upper floors it was a hospital. Which, I mean, how brilliant is that? Exactly. And I love that she was continually combining like income opportunities and aid because it's so realistic and it's, it seems like such a modern perspective as well. Like you can't continue to give unless you have some kind of income mm -hmm. to give with, right? So rather than asking for donors or, or relying on others or, which I mean may have worked, but she's just out there going, Hey, I, there's no reason I can't run a restaurant and also run a charity hospital in the same building, completely self-funding, right? It's exactly it's such a great model. So it really was. And one of the other things that I was reading was, um, I guess this started in her venture in Panama with her brother that where she had run kind of a similar thing, I guess. And her idea was that, I mean, she wasn't running hospitals and giving nursing and doctoring for free. She would charge her patients, but she wouldn't charge the people who couldn't afford to pay and she wouldn't turn them away. She would help anybody who came to them, came to her, whether they could pay or not. And she saw her wealthier patients as funding her poorer patients. And it's just, again, like it's, I, I love this kind of, um, philanthropy and business mm, combined. As combined, you say, absolutely. it's so smart and savvy yeah. and, um, kind of, far seeing. I think right. that that kind of venture, it carries you further than, you know, just kind of asking for one-time donations and, mm -hmm. and going on with that. Mm -hmm. and, however, her critics use this against mm -hmm. her and this became a huge sort of bone of contention um, because they, they tried to set her up as, as a charlatan or as a, as a businesswoman and trying to, um, you know, scalp perhaps a war profiteer or, you know, making money with one hand and then, and then providing charity with the other and, and this sort of thing. Well, so, and, um, 
we've mentioned Miss Nightingale before. <laughs> well, she, she crops up again. She crops up again here. They're both, you know, in uh, doing their best in the Crimean War. And right. again, not to downplay yes. what Florence Nightingale did because she really was an incredible figure in yes. nursing history and paved the way in a right. lot of ways and fought right. her own battles for sure. Yes, yes. Um, and was providing very valuable services oh, absolutely. to the Crimean soldiers. So, yes. Absolutely. Um, but Florence, well, apparently Mary Seacole was extremely respectful of Florence and wrote very uh, glowingly of her in mm-hmm. her autobiography. Mm-hmm. Uh, Florence, it sounds like, at best was kind of mixed on on Mary and she well apparently she respected and admired her skill as a nurse um she took issue with her methods uh, apparently Florence <laughs> Nightingale was a pretty um proper mm. I mean she was a um upper class wealthy woman who was I mean, come on. You're kind of like, okay, Florence, you can't put yourself in Mary's shoes. Because, I mean, Florence was going to the Crimea with, like, the full support of the British government, completely 100% funded by them. She didn't have to figure out a way to to get her supplies and fund her her nursing venture. There's a little privilege happening here. Yes. Check your privilege (laughs) there, uh, Flo. (laughs) So... So it was, a, yeah, it makes it a little harder to take when Florence yes. Nightingale is coming down on Mary Seacole for selling like liquor to the troops <laughs> and yes. like running this. She, she thought of the, um, the British hotel is what Mary Seacole called her, her hotel slash hospital. And Florence Nightingale saw it as, as a, a den of iniquity kind of a place. And she did not approve of this whole scheme. Right. So yeah, a little bit of, um, butting heads there. Yes. All right. It seems like Florence Nightingale was more butting her head against Mary Seacole than Correct. the other way around. Correct. Which is a shame because working together, the two women could have, who, well, who knows, right? Who knows where they it, could have gone. Right? Yeah. And as, as um, a couple of the sources that we were looking at pointed out, and, and unfortunately they've kind of been set up almost as like opponents right. in history since yes. then. And like yeah. you see online, different things like, well, who, who was better Florence Nightingale or Mary Seacole? <laughs> and it's really, it's doing a disservice to both of them right. to do that. And as somebody pointed out, or I think it was actually um, the ladies at uh, stuff you missed in history class did a, a really nice episode on their podcast on Mary Seacole. They went further into the, the politics and the situation of the Crimean war as well but as they pointed out it's completely frustrating that we see often um historical women kind of pitted against each other and why why have ladies always got to be battling like can't we recognize (laughs) that both of them contributed in their own ways because florence nightingale was well as you say she wasn't necessarily as hands-on in some ways as mary was she was um dedicated to um fighting the bureaucracy and at the same time setting up organizations for nursing and um, letter writing and um, really campaigning in a, in a broader way, mm. in a more political way. Whereas Mary, I think that option wasn't as much open to her. She didn't have the mm. connections that Florence Nightingale had. So Mary Seacole went about it in a more rolling up your sleeves, getting down to it, you know, pushing in, on the ground floor Absolutely. kind of a way. And they can both be respected and admired for their contributions. Right. That doesn't have to be a 
those those don't have to be con, um, contrasting <laughs> experiences. No, it's, it's right? not a competition. Or, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so, like you say, rolling up your sleeves, right? Going in on the ground floor, uh, literally going into the battlefield is how this Mary blew me C. Cole, away. Yeah, was uh, was saving lives and and helping people. Um, so she became a very familiar sight on the battlefields during the Crimean War, and uh, I really enjoy that she had two mules. I like that too. <laughs> I made mean, it I was like, I want to know their name. <laughs> want to know the mules I love it always is the same details that <laughs> yeah, stick out to like... both of us her age and the two donkeys <laughs> we're like those are the greatest facts the best part <laughs> so so she gets these mules and uh, these pack mules and basically just starts visiting battlefields right there's a battle going on um and she wouldn't wait for the battle to finish no. it was like she's under fire going out there helping soldiers on both sides just whoever is around whoever needs her and um and doing this kind of two-in-one thing where she's bringing food and water to sell to uh, officers and <laughs> spectators <laughs> i was like war spectators yeah, that was like what? a thing that right? was a thing. i remember hearing think- that like the first battle of the civil war right that's i remember that's <laughs> a detail always- you always hear that apparently it was like you know people came out and thought it was going to be this like picnic kind of a day (laughs) set up along to watch the battle which is absolutely gruesome yeah right well i mean when people are going to see hangings like public hangings i guess (laughs) <laughs> this, is, this is before tv i don't know <laughs> right so so okay she's like i i just love the the uh, image of her you know bringing these mules along like who needs food and wine and then, and then as soldiers start falling she's like okay i better get out you know hustles them out there and start patching people up yeah comforting them <laughs> as they die selling and... wine off one mule and banishing a, a soldier off another mule and like just it's so fascinating so she's um out there on the battlefield. Out there on well, the battlefield. One of the details that I really liked is that apparently she was a very bright figure on the battlefield, that she wore a lot of bright clothes, a lot of bright reds and yellows, and she would wear these bright red ribbons on her bonnet. And so the soldiers, they of course, they got to know her, and they saw her coming, and they they appreciated her so much. They At first, they were calling her the Black Nightingale. And then it seems as she became more and more familiar, they gave her the name Mother Seacole because they saw her as this this motherly figure who would stay with them when they were dying, who would patch them up and comfort them. And apparently, she was also a very warm, personable, um, funny person mm. as well. Had a great sense of humor and would joke and laugh with them. Whereas I guess Florence Nightingale was a little more stiff and hands off <laughs> and um, not as not as fun <laughs> as Mary. <laughs> I feel like if I was gonna like go for drinks with one or the other of them, I would pick Mary. Would Mary, for sure. <laughs> well, I mean Florence wouldn't drink probably. So <laughs> this is true. You'd be going for tea. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and like you say, her reputation at this point rivaled Florence Nightingale. So here are these two ladies sort of running the nursing show um, in the Crimean. And uh, and I like that one of our sources pointed out that the fact that Mary was independent, uh, she wasn't being funded by the British military, um, she could really do what she wanted and go where she wanted, meant that she had more freedom of movement. So she could follow battles or she could, you know, nurse where she wanted and how she wanted and sort of run things um, the way she liked. So while she did have to self-fund, it also meant that she had a lot of freedom. So mm-hmm. I'm sure it was very advantageous to be able to to uh, go where she it. wanted without yeah, and, and do what she needed to do. Man, because that was one of the things <sighs> yes. that Florence Nightingale was constantly dealing with was the opinions and the the 
uh, prejudices <laughs> of of the the men mm. around her, and it seems like because Mary didn't maybe didn't have that bureaucracy hanging over her, she was able to or just went ahead and did what she wanted without having to answer to people the way the way Flo did. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So by 1856, the war ends rather abruptly. I guess there was a um, it, <laughs> less somebody winning then i guess they they agreed to a peace um although it sounds like russia kind of came out got the worst of uh of the situation and of course politically this sets up a whole lot of things that get played out over the next uh number of decades leading up to uh world war one but that's again that's an, another topic mm. for another day um so but with the war ending rather abruptly mary is left with a whole lot of stock and a whole lot of provisions that she had stocked up and no one to sell them to. Mm. So she's got all of this stuff that she can't get rid of. And in the end, she returns to England and as is at quite a loss financially and is rather struggling. Um, so as I say, she returns to England and because she had become fairly well known. And of course there were a lot of vets who came back to England, all of these, um, war vets and a lot of them knew of her and her name did start to circulate in certain circles and when people realized that she was in financial difficulties her um her former uh boys as <laughs> i think she liked to refer to them as um kind of bestirred themselves and tried to get up some fundraising ventures which very well intentioned but from <laughs> what i was reading uh didn't actually end up helping her all that much i guess they they were going to do this like four day festival or ball or something and it was this big event and like you know the creme de la creme of of london society were were all involved in this well it sounds like they kind of spent more than they should have on this <laughs> event so in the end there just really wasn't much to give oh. to mary after this benefit on her behalf <laughs> oh, so <laughs> i have notes of like thousands of people attend right and... yeah and they did oh. but then we see <laughs> but uh, it was poorly managed yeah yes because then we see in a very short time she goes back to being destitute again or at least not very well off so Absolutely. yeah couldn't have raised that much no. money hmm. <laughs> So then Mary, once again, kind of taking mm -hmm. matters into her own hands, uh, in 1857, she publishes her autobiography, which has a pretty great title. Yes. Do you want to go for it? Uh, it is titled The Wonderful Adventures of Mrs. Seacole in Many Lands. Isn't that great? That's awesome. What a title. Yes. I just love that. Could see us writing a similarly titled know, right? adventure novel yes <laughs> yeah. so this it sounds like this really helped uh, her financial situation because it was a right. pretty big hit yeah it and did really well she publishes and then is able to live in comfort for yeah basically i guess the rest of her her life or many more years yeah it sounds like um the, the rest of her life was kind of spent bouncing back and forth between kingston jamaica mm. and england um but it sounds like yes she lived the rest of her life in in relative comfort aided partly by the sales of her book and mm -hmm. by uh, again i guess more fundraising efforts were taken up later on that were more successful <laughs> which <laughs> is, is good, good. yeah <laughs> yeah um so she was she ended life doing fairly well and um she was also very celebrated in victorian society at this time uh, as i say there were all these vets who came back and told all these amazing stories of mother sequel who just was absolutely incredible and as we're marveling over her now of yes. course british society at the time rather marveled over her then <laughs> well 
so Mary passed away in 1881 and within just a few years of her death, her life and her contributions were pretty well forgotten Mm. where Florence Nightingale, you know, went on her legacy continued and, and she became a major name in nursing and just a a major name in general. And we've all heard of her, uh, these many years later, Mary Seacole has been not nearly as famous a name and has, it's been much more recently that, uh, she's kind of been rediscovered by historians and Mm. by, um, kind of people in general. And of course, as you would imagine the first major push for that came in Jamaica in 1954 at the centenary of the um, Crimean War. There was an effort to get her name out there and get her recognized as one of the one of the most important citizens of Jamaica. Um, unfortunately, it took until like the 70s in Britain hmm. before she was like formally recognized um, by the government and by society. And since then, it seems like there's been kind of a building knowledge of who she was and what she did and and what she contributed yeah um although not without its own controversy so i was reading some of the more modern um um, information about her and uh, she was recently voted uh, the greatest black britain which is astounding and wonderful Um, and and then very very recently like we're talking maybe 2012 um the controversy continues because she was included she was purposely included in uh british school curriculum so children were learning about all these historical figures and they wanted to make sure that mary seacole was one of them and they were looking for for people of color to include right because they had been excluded or or forgotten or overlooked for so many decades in in the school curriculum so she was purposely included um, and then very recently, there's been all this lobbying um, to have her taken out, right? Oh, get her to, dr- not, not so much lobbying, but a few opinions. A few people are trying to get her taken out. And they mm-hmm. said her accomplishments had been exaggerated and the whole story wasn't told. And, and this is just an attempt by some people to, you know, sort of force diversity where, where it's not, uh, you know, not sort of 100% earned or this, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So there still continues debate and controversy today. Um, and then Which, there was a backlash against that, right? When, rightly when, so, yes, when I think. The British public heard that they were considering the, you know, the ministers of education were considering dropping her from the curriculum because they said uh, they wanted children to spend more time learning about people like, um, you know, Oliver Cromwell or um, Winston Churchill. And so everyone's going, oh, yes, of course. Those the white, white men, men. <laughs> that nobody ever hears enough about, right, really. Exactly. I mean. Like, you know, none of us know those names. So, so uh, there was like a, a different backlash saying, mm. no, please keep her in. And there were thousands of people signing all these petitions Good. and, and uh, all this. So, yeah, it's it, the controversy still continues today. And well, and what I take away from all of this is it, it's just... <laughs> there's room for everybody. Yes, yes. There really is. And we have so many opportunities now to learn in so many different and new ways. And there's so many resources out there and they're so easy to find that you no know, people shouldn't be left out. You shouldn't be <laughs> arguing that like so-and-so should be dropped in favor of somebody else. Right. I mean, I realize it becomes a, a matter of practicality when you're talking about formal curriculum in schools. Yeah. You only have so much time. Exactly. But I think as we, I think anybody with any (laughs) kind of modern sensibility and understanding in any sense would say that you don't start abandoning people who have been wrongfully abandoned for so many (laughs) years who make up a fuller picture Mm. of 
our world and the people in it right. in favor right. of those rich white men that we've all heard so much about and we'll right. continue and to hear about. Because they played important of roles. Of course they so did. we will always hear about them. I'm not I, worried know. about people right. forgetting Winston Churchill. <laughs> Nor am I, right. Um, I mean, he was great, but yes. so was Mary. Exactly. And uh, <laughs> some of these, these folks were arguing, well, um, she's the only uh black britain to be included who's not connected with civil rights or mm. um you know em- emancipation mm-hmm. uh movements so they said you know here's a woman in the sciences and in nursing and doing these great things and it, there's room for diversity in those yeah. areas as well so well and as you say yeah that's a really important point that mm-hmm. it's important to recognize those people who contribute in in different right, right. ways right because it seems natural to talk about you know people of color in the civil rights movement well of course but anti-slavery movement yes yes. and actually that's one of the things that was pointed out about her autobiography that it was published at a time when there were an awful lot of slave narratives being published Mm. Uh, and of course those certainly have their place in our amazing important documents and narratives and stories um but as somebody pointed out it it makes her narrative um really important in and of itself because it wasn't about her struggle against slavery. Here was a free black woman writing about her travels and her profession. And that's a voice that was pretty unique. And so it made her story even more important and even more valuable. The fact that, um, she was she was somebody who in general in the world was kind of a, a brushed aside voice and here she is demanding her her place and her say and mm. and thankfully in the end of her life at least getting the recognition that she deserved and being celebrated for the right reasons even if you know that was kind of forgotten for a time after her death mm. yes yes so. so i just want to kind of end on on just a couple of things about about Mary that she believed in um, because I think as much as possible, we want to try to talk about the people we talk about in their own voices, especially when there are people that their voices haven't been heard as much as they maybe should have been in the historical record. So one of the things that she deeply believed in was that bureaucracy should not deter the cause of service. Hmm. Uh, And so, I mean, that is just the way she lived her life. She didn't let, the rules stop her from <laughs> anything anything, and from doing what she was passionate about doing and serving in the way that she wanted to serve. And that's what floors me about her is that she's like as worthy as it would have been for her to, to pursue a career in finance or something. <laughs> she was just, she was so selfless mm-hmm. and all she wanted to do was go and help people. And the fact that she was facing all these barriers is just so ridiculous right. and astounding. And with these obvious business skills, yeah. she could have made loads of oh, money know, for herself yeah. perhaps had, had that been her focus. So, but it, well, I yeah. mean, she was just this like, like saint. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then finally, there's a really great quote um, that apparently uh, um, at some point while she was in Panama, she said, uh, wherever the need arises on whatever distant shore, I ask no higher or greater privilege than to minister to it. Mm-hmm. Isn't that lovely? There you go. We should all aspire yes. to such a thing, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Unbelievable. Absolutely. What a great lady. She really is. Go, Mary. Go, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> well, we hope you are as enamored of her now as we are. Yes. Yes. And, and spread the word about Mary Absolutely. Because Go buy a t-shirt or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And 
tell some kids about her. Exactly. <laughs> tell everybody about Mary Seacole because she really deserves it. Yes. <laughs> so um, we'll just end this episode by saying, as always, you can find the resources that we've used to prepare for this podcast um, on our website, along with the audio uh, from today's broadcast. <laughs> um, and if you want to get in contact with us, we'd love that. We would love to get some passionate love letters or some <laughs> constructive criticism. Criticism is yes. also welcomed, yes, perhaps absolutely. on the way I say the word crit- criticism. <laughs> Don't criticize. <laughs> um, and you can reach us at yesterladies at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at at yesterladies. And you can find us on Facebook. If you search for yesterladies, we'll pop right up and you should <laughs> like us. That would be nice. Um, you can find us on iTunes where we encourage you to subscribe and perhaps give us a review and a rate. That would really help us out. Um, I think that's all the ways you can support us. So, but, but any feedback is wonderful. We would love Absolutely. to hear from our listeners. So. And we'd love to connect with you. Yep. So once again, thank you for listening. Thanks. <laughs>